0: Now a story about one of the interesting side effects of the pandemic. Dealing with isolation and the need for social interaction has forced some men to realize that they need deeper friendships. Many male friendships are rooted in shoulder-to-shoulder interactions, such as watching sports or playing video games. And with most of that gone right now, they're feeling the need more than ever to make deeper connections. It's just as those memes out there suggest right now. Check in on your friends. They're not doing all right. For more on how men are looking for more out of their friendships, we'll speak to Samantha Schmidt, reporter the Washington Post.
1: I was really moved by the outpouring of emails I got when I tweeted about the story idea. And a lot of men were just telling me that they were noticing how much they had relied on these interactions that, you know, a psychologist referred to them as shoulder to shoulder interactions. you know, watching football, playing video games, playing golf, interactions where you didn't really talk that much, but it was kind of like the way that a lot of men would see their guy friends. And now without that, they're realizing they had lost touch with their male friends or they had a harder time connecting with them and they didn't really have a clear outlet for talking about what they were going through without having those kind of more casual in-person interactions. And a lot of people were really lonely, but a lot of people were also finding new ways to connect and were realizing that they were talking to their guy friends in ways that were much deeper and much more personal than before.
0: Yeah, definitely. Uh, You know, a lot of these ways that they were reconnecting were very similar to a lot of other people, you know, Zoom calls, text group chains and things like that. But in one of the examples that you gave there, you said that some groups of guys were now exchanging over 100 text messages a day. And a lot of it could have been kind of stream of consciousness, just fun stuff, top of mind things. But that little by little things did start to get deeper, deeper conversations, as you mentioned, about loneliness, the isolation, things like that.
1: And actually, one of the examples that keeps standing out for me is one dad I talked to said he realized his wife, for example, has for her entire life gone on walks with her female friends. It's something that she does all the time just to chat and catch up. But he had never thought to do that with his guy friends. You know, he mostly socialized at the softball league or going out for drinks, watching football. But he is now in the last few months, gone on several walks with his guy friend in parks here in D.C. just to catch up. And he's just he loves it. And he's realizing, why did I never do this before? This never dawned on me to say, hey, man, want to go for a walk at lunchtime today? <laughs> but he's really enjoying it and finding that he's talking about things kind of in more personal ways. And, you know, when you don't have the distraction of everything else you're doing in these other activities, like you it really gives you a chance to just talk and, and let go a bit more.
0: Yeah, definitely a shift for these men and their relationships with each other? And why do experts think that this is the case for a lot of men? Why don't they connect in other deeper ways until, you know, (laughs) until it's too late, let's say, until a pandemic hits and then they realize later that they should have been doing it the whole time? There's not a ton of research on this, but
1: a few people have over the years explored this issue, which they say is really a crisis of connection between men. And they think it's really rooted in the way that young men are raised. And I talked to this one professor, Niobe Way at NYU, who wrote a book about boys friendships. And she says that as young boys, male friends, when they're really young, they actually tend to be very vulnerable with each other and they share secrets and they have these like very kind of loving feelings towards each other. But then once they start to enter adolescence, like 15, 16, they really start to kind of shut down and be defensive and suddenly they are worries that it's going to seem gay for them to be close with their guy friends and so she thinks this is kind of rooted in in homophobia and misogyny in this culture that just discourages that emotional intimacy between men so suddenly it becomes weird to just connect with men for the sake of connecting and it needs to be rooted in a more masculine activity such as sports or video games
0: There was a guy you profiled in your article his name was Manny who went through this whole thing. He went through a breakup. He was uh, obviously isolated because of shutdowns and things. And he realized that he really needed social interaction that he wasn't getting anymore when he was just going to go see the, you know, sports games and things like that. And you kind of go throughout the article with him at the end. He says, you know, I I also needed to step up too, and I'm going to be real with my friends now and and let them know that I need to talk about stuff or be vulnerable in those senses
1: it was really hard for him. And I think it shows how this is the time when a lot of people are struggling. And sometimes when these kind of moments come up, and also when they're going through something like a breakup, and suddenly you lose somebody that you were more dependent on for that kind of emotional intimacy, you suddenly realize, who do I go to for this? Who can I open up to? And Manny realized that he had kind of grown apart from a lot of the guy friends that he would have hung out with before. And he was trying to be more deliberate, more intentional about opening up to them and being vulnerable around them. And he hopes that by him doing that, that they'll respond the same way, that they'll start to talk about their own lives. Because he suddenly realized, like, I don't actually know that much about their personal lives. I haven't met a lot of their family members. You kind of lose some of those more personal details when you don't have a kind of culture of checking in on each other and asking about more personal stuff that's going on in your life.
0: Reading throughout your article, I, I just kept thinking about those memes going around that said, check in on your friends. They're not doing all right. And, you know, going through this, this applies to men and women alike. If he's a big, tough guy or not, the guys are feeling some of that pain too. So definitely check in on all of your friends and do it for them and do it for yourself. So just a great little read. And I hope everybody takes the time to check it out. Samantha Schmidt, reporter at the Washington Post covering gender and family issues. Thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thank you
1: so
0: much for having me. Another interesting story out of the airline industry, the 737 MAX is on its way back. American Airlines will be the first to offer flights starting on December 29th. In advance of the first commercial flights, after being grounded for 20 months, due to two crashes and complications with a flight control system, American Airlines has offered a few demos of the plane. They were flying around executives, staff members, and members of the media. For this next story, we'll speak to Leslie Josephs. She's an aviation reporter with CNBC, She was on one of these preview flights, so she'll tell us how the experience went and what changes Boeing has made to make the plane safer.
2: The flight was about an hour. The first flight actually went from Dallas-Fort Worth, which is American Airlines headquarters, to the maintenance base in Tulsa. And they hosted a bunch of media there showing how they were taking the planes out of storage. I took the flight from Tulsa uh, back to Dallas-Fort Worth. It was about an hour, pretty smooth and not a lot to see. I mean, the interior looks not unlike other narrow bodies. People have flown on the 737 Max was in service for about two years by the time the plane was grounded. So lots of folks have already been on the plane. And the changes that airlines and Boeing are are making to the planes to make them airworthy again, they're not really visible to the naked eye. So there's really not a lot to see that might be different. Were you a little nervous going into the flight? Uh, no, I wasn't really nervous. I mean, I and other uh, aviation reporters have studied a lot of the changes that they've done to make the planes safer. And so the two crashes that occurred in October 2018 and uh, again in March 2019, so that they don't happen again.
0: So no, not especially. <laughs> well, now. I, I mean, that's great, though. That's that was the purpose of this to kind of rebuild the confidence for the public to be able to fly these planes. Uh, tell me a little bit about some of the changes they made. I know pilot training was something different on simulators, something that didn't happen the first time around with this MCAS system. So what other changes did they make?
2: So pilot training is one of them. They, you know, simulator training wasn't a part of the original, and they did add that step. So pilots are starting to cycle through those training modules. Now, um, and American airlines and other airlines are starting their pilots on them very soon. But the system that was implicated it was a flight control system was implicated in both of those fatal crashes that Boeing has worked to make that less aggressive and give pilots more control so that in both of those crashes the pilots essentially fighting this automated system that was activated by getting incorrect sensor data and it continually pushed the nose of the plane down so now with their upgrade that they've uh, installed and american airlines continues and other airlines uh, continue to install on their uh, 737 max airplanes it won't have those same characteristics more control will be in in the hands of the pilots
0: American Airlines is going to be the first to start reflying these planes. It's going to be coming at the end of December, I think. What do we know about that? So they're supposed to be the first in the U.S. to start on the 29th. They're going to start
2: slow. For lack of a better term, they're going to have flights between Miami and New York's LaGuardia Airport. But the goal is to eventually expand this to other airports. I mean... They had 24 of these airplanes in their fleet at the time of the grounding, and they have several dozen more on order. So it's going to be a big part of American's fleet and other airlines going forward for years. But it's going to to take that long to get all those planes
0: into service and onto routes. As I mentioned, convincing travelers is going to be a big thing for them. From my understanding, the airlines are going to clearly note when somebody books a flight and that's going to be on a 737 MAX, and then passengers can have the option to switch a plane or, or do a lot of that stuff. How, how will all that work out?
2: Yeah. So the airlines say that they're going to be very transparent about it. So when you book your flight, you'll see, you know, the time, the date, the routing, and it'll say seven, you know, when you look at the equipment type, it'll say 737 max. There've been some reports out there that, the name Boeing has very gently uh, stepped away from using the name in certain instances. For example, in some press releases, it'll maybe unlike the second or third reference, it won't say the word max. It'll oh. say 737 or 737, <laughs> eight. And even in the 737 max that I flew on, the safety card says 737. It doesn't say max. And I actually flew an older model of the 737, which has been in service this whole time on my commercial flight back home. And it was the same safety card. So you're not seeing those things. But the airlines say that now that you can book flights on the plane, people don't want to fly in that plane. They will allow them to switch off to another flight if it's available. Some people might not even notice.
0: You know, beyond that, we talked about this the last time as well, returning to flying during a pandemic. Let's look at Thanksgiving. Passenger traffic was at an eight month high over Thanksgiving, but that was 40 percent lower than last year. And obviously health officials don't want people flying too much right now. But this is just one of those other difficulties that these uh, Mm -hmm. airlines, uh, you know, the plane makers, everybody's having this problem right now
2: that's a bigger problem than the max right now i mean because there are so few people traveling and airlines of course have to convince people to fly at all whether they're on a max or they're on an older 737 or they're on an airbus plane so that's kind of a bigger concern um and also policing people on the plane to make sure that they're wearing masks and things like that so we did see a spike in air travel over thanksgiving holiday at eight months high it was actually just 40% of last year's level. And since then, air travel generally early December is kind of a a lull anyway. We've seen that go back to, I mean, we're like a third of where we were last year. So it remains to be seen how we go at Christmas. Obviously another big holiday. The peak days are actually in the summer um, when everyone's off. Um, And, you know, the airports are very full. But the thing is, for airlines there are so few days that people travel usually for the holidays so they can charge higher fares because everyone wants to get home get to their families their friends for the holidays but now with COVID cases spiking and warnings coming out of the cdc and from other health officials against travel that remains to be seen whether people go through with their bookings and airlines have become more flexible saying okay you book and then we will allow you to change your flight for another another time so we could see people canceling and and maybe traveling later when there's a vaccine, or maybe cases start to go down, something along those lines.
0: Leslie Josephs, aviation reporter at CNBC, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Finally for this week, space has increasingly become an integral part of militaries around the world as they conduct anti-satellite tests and establish military branches. The U.S. Space Force is now one year old and France and Japan have also created their own space divisions. More countries are expanding into space with ways that will benefit their societies and with it they're increasing their defensive and offensive capabilities there. For more on the rise of these military space powers we'll speak to Miriam Kramer, space reporter at Axios.
3: The military has been relying on space for a number of years especially the U.S. military. GPS satellites are used To figure out where to go (laughs) based on where various soldiers deployed troops are, we have extremely powerful spy satellites that are able to take detailed images of the earth that also give the military some idea of kind of what's happening in any given place at any given time. And these capabilities are incredibly advanced, but they also make them really good targets. Like, for example, the spy satellites that are up there these days are extremely expensive, but they're also not that difficult to sort of shoot out of the sky if somebody wants to. Now, there are a lot of reasons why countries wouldn't do that kind of thing, but it's still a concern for the U.S. as other powers like Russia and China start sort of shoring up their own defensive and offensive capabilities in space.
0: When the uh, president had announced that he was going to be creating the Space Force, a lot of people kind of, took it as a joke and whatnot. But once you started digging into it, you kind of see that this was really much more of a necessity. Obviously, I guess the Air Force was handling some of these capabilities at that time, but now making its own branch of the military, there's a lot of stuff that goes into it. Uh, What do we know about President-elect Joe Biden and how he might continue the Space Force? I know some people are saying that they hope he kind of takes a hands-off approach and let the branch kind of develop on its own. But they're also saying that he should probably continue this operation.
3: The space industry and space insiders in general actually think that the Space Force is a really good idea. It gives space the priority that it sort of deserves. They see as it deserving as a part of the armed forces. So I think that the hope from some folks that I've spoken to is that instead of sort of making Space Force this kind of catchphrase that kind of calls to mind the idea of actually sending people to space, that instead a Biden administration will allow the Space Force to basically just do its thing. And its thing is not sending people to space. The Space Force is meant to be Safeguarding satellites in orbit. So their mandate is to you know, make sure that those essential assets that the military uses every day remain up there and remain usable. So I, I think that's sort of what these folks mean by a more hands off approach than what we've seen from the Trump administration.
0: You know, we're talking about military powers right now, too. But as we've discussed before, everyday Americans use a lot of these satellites, GPS satellites, a bunch of different things just so we can operate, quote unquote, normally now. It would be a huge thing if any of those things were to go offline. So it's important to protect a lot of those assets. Some experts do say that the U.S. is falling behind a little bit in its efforts to secure its space infrastructure. And we know there's other countries. uh, You noted France and Japan recently created their own military space division. So where are we on that front?
3: So as far as sort of the U.S. shoring up its own defenses in space, I think that what folks are kind of worried about is the fact that like U.S. got out there really fast. Like uh, it was the first country that kind of had this great infrastructure of military satellites up there that could take this exquisite imaging that could do the kind of thing that we're seeing now with just GPS and with imaging satellites. But since that time, effectively since the Gulf War, that architecture has not evolved as much as some think it should, as in instead of sort of innovating on that and maybe contracting private companies to launch their own constellations with the instruments from the government on them, instead of just throwing these extremely expensive satellites up into orbit that make them really juicy targets. I think that folks are a little bit worried that that puts the U.S. in a vulnerable position because other countries are just getting better and better and better. No one is to the point where they're caught up with the U.S. as far as capabilities in space go, but countries are starting to get there in some ways, and they're certainly able to target our satellites if they wanted to. So... It's sort of a complicated picture. Like, I think nobody disputes that the U.S. is still way ahead as far as military uses of space. But there are questions about how far ahead the U.S. will continue to be.
0: And continuing what you were just saying there, a lot of this is about satellites right now. You know, we're not in Star Wars mode just yet. You know, that, <laughs> could, that might eventually happen. Who knows? But a lot of this is about satellites right now, as you said. And it, it would be difficult to start just outright destroying satellites. It creates a lot of space debris and whatnot. But there's other ways. There's jamming of satellites. There's other cyber attacks that can be done. That's all possible right now. I think
3: that that is what people are most concerned about. With destroying a satellite, I mean, that's a big move. That's an overtly hostile act. And it's usually pretty easily attributed to whatever country is doing it. So that would be a huge geopolitical problem. But if you have these other forms of conflict that are maybe a little bit more subtle, like you're jamming somebody's satellite or there's a cyber attack that maybe takes a satellite offline and you lose some data, that kind of thing is harder to attribute. And therefore, some people are thinking that that's probably going to be a bit more attractive to countries perhaps in the future, especially if norms aren't established around that kind of behavior right now.
0: Well, I love a good space story. I know this has to do with a lot with uh, with national security and all, but it's just, you know, it's interesting that we've gotten to the point where this is the new frontier that we're uh, starting to put a little more emphasis on. So we'll continue to watch out what's going on. Miriam Kramer, space reporter at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks again for having me. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.